From my home office, on behalf of the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm your host and Prindle Institute director, Andy Cullison, and with me is our producer, Kate Berry. Hello. For each episode of Getting Ethics to Work, we discuss a case or issue and unpack the difficult and often hidden ethical tensions that can make it hard to get along with others at work. And by the way, case is just an ethicist word for story. And now before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are not lawyers and are not offering legal expertise, but as an ethicist, I can tell the bus driver to put the brakes on that bus that you just got thrown under. And if you like what you've been hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do is recommend the show to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I hope you'll consider doing that. So Kate, what are we talking about today? Well, listeners who clicked on this may notice that this is a part two. I hope you go check out part one. The first half of this show was called Let's Keep It Between Us. Here's the cases I laid it out in that first half of the episode. Rose is the trainer of a grant-funded free job training program. She notices that one of the people who's in the program has stopped showing up, and the granting agency stipulates that there's an attendance requirement. If you miss twice, you should be cut from the program, and you're not allowed to take future courses. Rose goes to her supervisor, Sebastian, and tells him the situation. He says that he would prefer not to jeopardize the person's chances of taking classes in the future and says something like, for all we know, this could be COVID related. Um, There's a weird rule about this that trainers aren't supposed to contact the people in the program. There's uh, additional support staff that coordinates with the participants. And Sebastian doesn't want Rose alerting that staff. And so he tells her, don't contact the person who's missing. And he says, finally, ignore this. Don't kick him out of the class. Don't let anyone know he's missing. Oh, and don't tell anyone we had this conversation. Ooh. Yeah. Right. And if I remember correctly, the paths we discussed in part one were paths where the person wanted you to keep a secret, but they probably had some kind of reason that they thought was a good reason. And we were advising, you know, it's good to kind of do the work of try to figure out what that good reason might be, right? Right. And we we set aside an option that was like, what if the person really is a bad actor and they really are having you keep the secret because they're basically throwing you under the bus or they're going to they're ready to throw you under the bus if things go wrong and blame it all on you. Yeah. So that's something that we didn't talk about for that episode, but we thought we'd want to talk about today. And I think our conversation today won't just be about someone who wants you to keep a secret for a bad reason, but dealing and working with bad actors in general, right? Right, yeah. We tend to have an assumption on the show that when you're dealing with a conflict with someone, you're, you're dealing with someone who's participating in the moral domain, so to speak. Like they, they at least think they're doing something for a good reason. They have a rationale for it. And the idea is there's a moral disagreement between two people. But sometimes you encounter people who are just plain old bad actors. They're not playing, they're not playing by any moral rules as far as you can tell. And, you know, it's a good, interesting question. What do you do when you're dealing with someone who's not playing by the moral rules at all? And, uh, you know, it, it puts you in a really uncomfortable position where you might feel pressure to do a lot of things that you normally wouldn't do. It's just not in your character or nature. And so I thought it would be cool to go down that path. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the sometimes difficult thing to believe in most conflicts is that 
most people are doing what they think is right, even if you don't agree. But then today we're going to be talking about someone who is knows they're doing something wrong and are doing it anyway. Or or they have the basest uh, moral theory, which is they think they're doing something right, but their moral theory is basically egoism, where the right thing to do is whatever works out for me, right? So that, that, that that's their quote-unquote good reason. I'm entitled to look out for number one at all times, and that's that's a moral theory you could have. But no one is going to want to be around you. Right, right, right. So maybe they, maybe you're dealing with someone who thinks they have a good reason, but it's a pretty base good reason, quote unquote good reason. It's, it's just a kind of egoism. So yeah, what do you do when you're dealing with someone like that? All right, let's get to work. Great. So before you start thinking about what to do with a bad actor or, or what your next step should be, Really, you need to make sure you're you're actually dealing with a bad actor because it's, um, you know, if this person really is coming from a place of values and you just haven't identified it yet, it's not going to go well. So I think you sort of really do your digging. Now, so I'm going to assume in this case that we're discussing that the person has done due diligence. They really do think they're dealing with someone with like no moral compass. And when you're dealing with someone with no moral compass, all sorts of behaviors are going to start to become tempting. I know when I've been in places where a boss or a coworker was just bad, it sometimes feels like your only option is to quit or to try to work around them in ways that don't necessarily feel great. If they're sneaky and bad to you, that sometimes it feels like the only way to respond is to be sneaky and bad to get around them. Right. And the, I mean, yeah, all these kinds of passive aggressive behaviors suddenly seem like, hey, maybe maybe that's not such a bad option. And as an aside, we did a whole episode about dealing with passive aggressive behavior. So you should go check that out if you're interested in that topic. So let's let's get some of these things on the table that might be tempting. The person might be tempted to pretend to go along with the order that they've been given, but then just not do it and hope the issue goes away. You might go over someone's head or or behind their back in a way that would I would we, I think we would typically suggest like talk to that person, you know, you know, deal with the person with whom you're having the problem. If you know that you can't go to that person, then you might go to the superior, go above their head in a way that uh, typically would be considered pretty bad behavior. Right. And you might even be tempted to go above their head in ways that are outside the norms, like like maybe you don't trust that you'll get a fair hearing with their superior. Uh, so you you know you go you go one or two levels higher and you're you, you're suddenly that person who goes straight to the CEO with your problem uh, because you think that's you think that's the only way you're going to get a voice in this. In our passive aggressive behavior episode, we talked about a sort of subtle sabotage that if there's a project you don't agree with, that somehow that deadline just slips your mind and you don't finish the project and that sort of accidentally on purpose not meeting deadlines. <laughs> Right. Oh, sorry. I left the important work file in at home and I live an hour away. Shoot. Oh, I'll bring it in tomorrow. Right. Um, yeah. It's so the subtle kinds of sabotage. But again, you know, you're feeling torn, right? Like it feels icky in one sense. But when you get when your back's against the wall and you think you're dealing with a genuinely bad actor or with someone who's trying to who was asking you to do things or to behave in a way that you think might get you fired anyway, that in, in our case, Rose was being told to do something that was against the rules, 
but her boss was saying she should do that and then not giving her any cover. Right. If a, Yeah, I've been told to do something that seems to me to be fireable. And uh, what do I got to lose? If I do the thing, I risk being fired. If I do these other things, I risk being fired. So the, the risks are kind of a wash. And so what I find interesting about this case is I can imagine a person in this situation being pulled in two different directions, right? There's there's going to be reasons that weigh on them for thinking, maybe I should take the high road on this. Some, something doesn't seem right, even even in that kind of behavior. Maybe you don't like the idea of being overly political, and this just seems like the part of office politics that just kind of sickens you. Uh, but then on the other hand, you're like, my back's against the wall, and I'm going to get fired if I do the thing. And so maybe these things are you know worth the risk, or maybe they're not so bad. So that, yeah, that's that's the kind of case I think is, to me, a really interesting kind of moral dilemma. Yeah, I think so too. I, I want to unpack, you know, why they might be thinking it's okay, why, and maybe offer some reasons for why maybe it's not as bad as you think, uh, kind of lay out both sides. But before we do that, I, I think another important bit of advice in this situation would be, you know, be really careful in this kind of situation and make sure that all avenues have been exhausted, Right. Is there an HR department that uh, is really good about anonymized, you know, reports and consultations about these kinds of things? You know, is there an OMSBUD person? Is there, does, does the organization you work for have a robust way of protecting employees in this kind of situation? And if they do, you might want to explore those options. So if Rose is thinking about not complying with what Sebastian asked her, that she was at, he told her not to record that students weren't coming to the training sessions. And she thinks, you know, I may do it anyway, even though I've been told that I shouldn't do that. How does she start going about deciding whether or not she should, in this case, stick with the actual rule, but break the rule that Sebastian has given her? So in in a way, this is a kind of, some kind of ethics of non-compliance, right? You're not complying with something that a supervisor told you. But if we were going to make it more general too, that just someone has asked you to do something that you think is wrong and that you are likely being set up to get it in trouble, that you're somehow acting as their shield. They've set you up to to do something they know is wrong because they don't want to take credit or discredit for it. You're basically in a position where you're going to be tempted to engage in noncompliance in some way back to one of those things, pretend to go along, lie, go behind their back, go outside the chain of command, um, engage in some kind of sabotage. And there are going to be a lot of reasons why I think people would have a strong visceral reaction against doing this kind of thing, right? You know, we're told that two wrongs don't make a right, don't sink to their level, treat people the way you want to be treated, right? That, that, that kind of, those kind of mantras that we're given throughout our lives are going to make us feel like I don't want to do this kind of thing. And there's a moral theory that I really like uh, called social contract theory. And the, the basic idea behind social contract theory is that morality and ethics is, it's basically like there are these implicit rules of the game that we're all agreeing to treat each other in a certain way. You know, it's expected that you'll behave in certain ways, but there's also an implicit unspoken assumption that I will reciprocate and and participate in the rules of the game. And then uh, bad actors 
have basically decided to stop playing by the implicit rules of the game that we had all agreed to. And it's like, well, I mean, if you're not going to play by the social contract rules that, you know, we've been brought up to think are in play, then I might still have to adhere to these rules for everyone else who's still playing the game, but you, you've stopped playing the game. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not bound by the rules of the game that you've decided to stop playing. And this is complicated. I think, I don't know how you feel about it, but I don't know exactly where I sit on this one. That on one hand, I think the the two wrongs don't make a right is really deep, deeply embedded in my brain. But that I also can understand that if you, especially if like, it's a hard time to get another job, maybe it's a job you love, and that you feel like the thing that's ruining it is the someone who's behaving really badly, that you might feel like you have to change your behavior. Yeah, this is a tough case. And I can at least say this, I'm not going to judge somebody harshly if they found themselves in this situation. It's a, it's a tough situation to be in. Well, Andy, it seems like we've highlighted some abstract general things to keep in mind, but I feel like we're, we're still kind of avoiding this question of what to do with a bad actor. I don't think we really have like a specific action plan. What should someone do if they're in a situation like this? Okay, I, ha I have a confession. Uh, admittedly, I, I've been dodging this question. I have, I've been avoiding it. I'm, I'm usually one to just like give lots of advice, but I've been, I've been, I've been really avoiding it here. And I'll, I'll say a little bit about why, and then what the heck, maybe I'll just give some, what I would do in this situation. Part of the reason is when, when you're dealing with a bad actor, the playbook is just harder to define. Um, the ways in which people break the social contract uh, will be very different in different cases, and they're going to affect things that may or may not be in play for you that normally would not be in play for you. And so I, it's just so highly variable from situation to situation. The, the bad things they're doing, the nature of what they're doing, I just think it affects what the options are that I just wanted to give some kind of general guidelines of like, look, you're dealing with a bad actor, make sure it is a bad actor, right? Really be sure. Note that some of the things you're going to be doing might make you vulnerable to termination. So you just got to bear that in mind. And three, whatever that thing is that you think would be okay to do that you might not normally do, I just wanted to give listeners a little bit of peace of mind that there are normative theories, moral theories out there that sort of say, hey, maybe you shouldn't feel so bad about that. That idea of a social contract and when someone breaks it, things that normally wouldn't be okay to do might in this case be okay to do. I just, I just wanted to, I wanted to talk in the abstract because it's hard to give that kind of advice in cases like this, specific cases, specific action plans. And I guess the other reason I've been dodging the question is that, um, you know, the options to protect yourself may involve doing things that you wouldn't normally do. And they may even involve insubordinate behavior. This is almost like a case of civil disobedience in the corporate environment. And I'm reluctant to outright recommend insubordination or civil disobedience. I, I'd, I'd hate for a listener to come back and be like, you told me to lie and pretend to follow orders and it got me fired, right? I mean, if they weren't listening to that disclaimer above, like, I just don't want to be causally responsible for anyone losing their job uh, because of advice. So I think I'm just was being a little bit of a chicken on this. 
but but you know that said, I, one thing I think I would be comfortable doing is just saying like, here are some things I would likely do. Um, I, I've never been in a situation where the bad actor has been this bad, and so you know, in in many and maybe that's also why I've been reluctant is because I've just I've never encountered a bad actor that I wasn't able to you know somehow find a a less icky seeming way out, right? That again, remember we set this case up so that like all options were off the table, right? Yeah, Rose doesn't have any other choice. And I've never felt like I never had any other choice. I always felt like I had avenues and options available to me. That said, so let what if I were really dealing with a bad actor? And and let's go back to the specific case. The, it's a bad actor and they're they're asked they're they're giving me an order. They're asking me to keep it secret. It's really, really clear to me that they're asking me to keep the secret uh, because they don't want it. They don't want to be attached to the decision, and they're, they're going to throw me under the bus if things go wrong. Yeah. So in this case, Sebastian is the boss asking Rose to do something and keep it secret. What would I do if I were in Rose's situation? Well, first off, the things that I think would be on the table that normally I don't think would be on the table for me would be... I wouldn't feel obliged to deal with Sebastian uh, very truthfully. I mean, I don't. I, w- I might not. I might not in that case just outright defy the order and just be like, you know, no, I'm not going to do this wicked thing, right? I might, you know, uh, that might be a case where I nod my head and, and lead Sebastian to believe that I'm about to to uh, go along, and at least buy myself some time to figure out what I need to do, right? A lot of times when you realize you're dealing with a bad actor. It's like in the middle of interacting with them. You're like, oh, oh, the rules of the game are totally different here. This person has no moral compass. And so I would I would want to buy myself time just to figure out what my next move is. So that that's first. Get out of the situation. And I would be comfortable having Sebastian think that I'm about to comply with whatever it is. So that's that's one. As I'm dealing with Sebastian moving forward. I would document absolutely everything. Every future interaction I have with Sebastian, I would take five minutes just to jot down what the conversation was, what were the major things discussed, uh, highlight the things that seemed problematic about the interaction. I would just start keeping detailed notes about everything because it may be at some point that things hit the fan. And if you're the one in the room who's got like 10 pages of notes, like the first time Sebastian asked me to do this, I started documenting every conversation thereafter. I think you're going to be in a much better position than Sebastian is if you and Sebastian have to go before someone else to sort of explain what the heck is going on right now. Another thing I would do is I would try to find allies. If the person is genuinely a bad actor, you know, no moral compass whatsoever. There are going to be other cases. And if they're not widely known, it's because they're probably scared like you are, right? So if this is a bad actor and they do this kind of stuff all the time, somebody else has encountered this in some way, shape, or form. And so I would start trying to find who those people are, right? Because you you may be eventually able to build up like a, a coalition of people who are like, no, this guy's a bad apple. And if there are enough of you, uh, whatever power that bad actor has dwindles over time. Also, I would I would start watching them like a hawk. 
I'm not saying like start building a case for their removal, but if they're a genuinely bad actor, there's a real good chance, just like they have possibly wronged other people in the office, uh, there's a real good chance that they're doing something else. Bad actors with no moral compass, it bleeds over into all areas of their life. They're likely going to be doing other things. And so I would just want to be watchful to sort of figure out what other things might they be doing. And again, document everything. And this is also one of those things that you might feel icky about, right? We, there's this culture of not tattletaling, not snitching. And we have, we have a whole episode on that, about the ethics of snitching at work. And so you might think, Andy, you're basically recommending being this conniving person who is basically building a case against this person. And then you're at some point, you're going to drop a bomb and snitch on them. And yes, that is kind of what I'm thinking. But but we there's very like American Western notion of mind your own business. Don't snitch. Again, check out that episode. But also go back to the idea of the social contract, right? This person is trying to set up things so that you will take the fall. A, that's way worse than snitching. And if there is any moral obligation to not snitch, if people have some rights to you minding your own business, Sebastian's lost it. Like I, I, I'm, I'm, it, it seems pretty clear to me that he does not have a right for you to mind your own business with respect to what he's doing. And then um, this, this would also sort of depend on what I felt my political capital was in an organization or where I fit in the power structure. But if I felt really vulnerable, uh, trying to find ways to anonymously raise concerns uh, about the bad behavior of this actor. And, and being very careful that what I disclose also doesn't out any of the allies that I found, if they have stories about the bad behavior. So I've, I've bought my time, and now I'm starting to document. I'm keeping an eye out for things that Sebastian might be doing. I'm finding allies. I'd like to be able to drag my heels on complying uh, until I've gathered enough information. So by when Sebastian discovers that I've not complied and I suddenly feel like now I've got an answer for myself, I feel like I'd have a little bit more courage. Like, look, I'm just not comfortable following an order, but not being allowed to say that I was told to follow orders. And then if it turns into this is going to be a battle, I'm going to be more comfortable going into that battle with the higher ups if I have all this information and if I've documented everything. So I'm, I'm basically, I'm prepared to make the case that like, I was being asked to follow orders in a suspicious way from someone who's clearly not a team player. Here's all the interactions we've had. It's, it very much seemed to me like he wanted me to do something that was against company policy and wanted me to take the fall. And by the way, here are some other things I've observed, and I would actually like to request being switched to another team or have a new supervisor, something along those lines. But having a good, solid case to be made, buying myself that time to build that case, and then I would just feel more comfortable if it was a case that ended up being combative and I felt like my job was on the line because I disobeyed uh, what I thought was an unjust order. So Andy, at the top of the show, you talked about being really sure that you're dealing with a bad actor. 
So that must mean that there are times that someone might think that their boss is a bad actor or their coworker is a bad actor and they could be wrong, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I think we talk a lot about making sure that you are putting yourself in the shoes of someone else trying to discover their moral reasons for acting a certain way. But what about the person who's being perceived? How might someone try not to seem like a bad actor or hopefully also not be a bad actor? That's a really good question. And I think the first step is you've got to really care whether or not you're perceived to be a bad actor. Yeah, I have had bosses and known people who say, I don't care if people think I'm the bad guy. Yeah, yeah, you should you should actually care a lot because if you're perceived to be the bad guy, there are going to be things that people are going to think are fair play that they ordinarily wouldn't think are in fair play. And so if you are resigned to being perceived to be a bad actor, watch out because basically no one is going to want to be cooperative with you. And those projects that aren't getting done, they're probably not getting done for a reason. And our boss from part one, we figured that he had good reasons or that he felt that he had good reasons for asking Rose to do what he did. He felt that he had good reasons for asking Rose to break the rule. But is there a way that he could still be perceived as a bad actor, even though he felt like he had good reasons? Absolutely. It's basically a case where you're or someone was being ordered to be subversive for what the boss thinks is a good cause. And and I think it's important not to fall prey to a tempting principle. And here's the principle. If the subversion is morally justified, then asking people to participate is morally justified. That's probably what's going on inside a boss who thinks it's okay to order subversive behavior. Like, this is a morally justified bit of behavior, even though it's subversive. And so asking people to participate is going to be justified. It shouldn't take much reflection to come up with counterexamples to this. You know, this is basically a version of if it's a good thing to do, then it's a good thing for me to ask people to be involved in doing. You might think it's wrong or at least problematic to make people do the right thing um, if you haven't done some further work for for them. So one example I like is, is forced apologies, right? Situations where the order deprives the activity of its moral value, right? If you think, if you think apologies are only morally praiseworthy or valuable, if they come motivated from the person who recognizes the wrong that they've done and is willing to make amends, that's a good apology. But me telling you, Kate, go apologize to that person, you might think the asking um, undermines the moral value of the apology. And maybe also my ability to actually feel remorse and to apologize genuinely. I think also if someone were to, like if someone really believed in in charity or, or giving away money, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. But if they then forced their their employees to do so, there might be something pretty suspect about that, that um, these are things that I think we think are most valuable and praiseworthy when they come from an internal mechanism. And if it's external, then it really loses, one, it butts up against a lot of rights, but also just like loses its meaning. Again, you might think that principle, uh, while it might be somewhat tempting, doesn't, doesn't stand up to much scrutiny. And so just because you think some action is good, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good for you to ask other people to be involved with it. 
So that was Sebastian's mistake. If he wanted to do something and have the rule change or to subvert the rule, he should have done it himself rather than asking his employee to do so. That's at least what I'm thinking, or at, le at least, you know, I just think as managers and leaders of organizations, we just need to be mindful about the assumption that good and okay for me to do translates into good and okay for me to ask somebody else to do it. Thanks so much for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. I'm Andy Cullison. And I'm Kate Barry. If you have a question about business ethics you'd like answered on the podcast, email me at katherineberry at depaw.edu and maybe we'll talk through your issue on the air. We hope you are staying safe and healthy in this crisis. We also hope you can take some of what we discussed here and get it to work. If you want to learn more about what we talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org slash work. That's all one word, get ethics to work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is still the best place for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.